The Total Soccer Show. My name is Taylor Rockwell. Ryan Bailey will not be with us today. He's off, I guess, wandering around Europe. So instead, I'll be taking over his hosting duties. Joining me on this weekend review are two fellows. Up first, a man who genuinely has me thinking we should all be watching the Balloon World Cup. Graham <laughs> Ruffin, hello. And thank you for introducing me to the most mesmerizing thing I have seen in a while. I mean, we're working off the assumption that that is what Ryan is away covering, aren't we? <laughs> I mean, he should be, and I hope so. And if he's not, shame on him. Uh, yeah, I mean, you're absolutely right. It is incredible, and I'm I'm not kidding. Like, I want to watch. I, I hope Sky Sports pick up the live rights for the next iteration of the Balloon World Cup because yeah. I just love how they set it up in a, as a living room, like a living That's room ridiculous. in a squash court, which perfectly emulates how I used to play this game with yep. my brother as a kid. This could have been my calling. It really, like, for for people who haven't seen it, which is probably most people, because I only saw it because Graham said it to me this morning, it really is exactly as he just described, except also with a small SUV <laughs> in there as well, but it's just two guys trying to keep a balloon alive. You have one hit. If it touches the ground, I guess you lose a point, or the other player gains a point. But it was one of those things where I started watching and thought, like, oh, this is kind of cute, and then became really rapidly invested in in, like, the strategy and the tactics, the frustration when it gets caught on the car and that allows the other player to catch up. Graham, I really mean it. Thank you for the introduction to Balloon World Cup. No problem. I, I assume, I also assume this is going to be a TSS spinoff when the next <laughs> Balloon World Cup happens, like the Euros. We'll be doing I it mean, every day. I mean, I, I feel like there aren't enough podcasts out there, so let's get a podcast about the <laughs> Balloon World Cup. Joining us uh, today is a fella who doesn't get as exciting of an introduction because instead of watching the Balloon World Cup, he was just crossing off names on the MLS playoff list. It's Joe Lowry. <laughs> Hi, Joe. Are you tired of line drawing? Um, slightly. No, I'll never get tired of line drawing, especially when I do it with Balloon World Cup footage playing in the background. <laughs> um, because I'm not going to lie to you guys. I was just watching that Yay! clip on repeat while you and Graham were talking just then, Taylor. Yeah. Uh, I, I will confirm you get a point when you Thank hit you. the balloon uh, to the ground before your opponent can get underneath it and, and bap it back up in the air. And I'm also encouraged to hear that, Graham, at least you played this game growing up, Taylor. I don't know if you did or not, but this oh, yeah. feels like something that permeated every household at some point. Oh, yeah. And then there's furniture broken. There's loud noises coming from upstairs. Right. right. The parents respond. Yeah, I think those all that should be part of the distraction phase is one of the players' parents just screaming at them from off off court about how they're making too much noise. You got to add in the real life distractions to make it realistic. Oh, for yeah. sure. For sure. Min, min, minus the car. When I played as a kid, there wasn't a car. And, and See, to anyone who hasn't seen this, just to explain, I think the car is there for sponsorship yeah. purposes, but I actually is a really interesting obstacle <laughs> where it's like this it's just it's just big enough to get round mm-hmm. so you can get you can stop the balloon hitting the ground but it, 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 there's a tactical element to it being in the middle of the room i think you're absolutely right that it is a a sponsorship agreement but I also like to think that it's just representative of the people who played this game in their garage growing up. And so you have to have the car in there. You got to work around the car. You also have a living room set up. You got to work around there. I appreciate that they are wearing helmets and no other protective padding. Those shins feel like the things that would be most in pain. But I feel like we've gone long on the Balloon World Cup. Maybe too long, perhaps? <laughs> never. Never too never long. Too long. Come on. I appreciate that. Uh, so on this episode, we will be rounding up the action in England, Germany, Spain, and Italy, taking a look at a few matches in detail let's begin with the Premier League where Liverpool hit Norwich for five Chelsea and City kept their title aspirations alive and Manchester United did the opposite of thrive I may have used that one before but it (laughs) continues to apply Jamie Vardy had a party while Manchester United's defense was anything but hardy Rashford made it too too late but conceding 15 seconds later sealed Manchester United's fate the match was momentarily hard fought Graham Ruffin your thoughts (laughs) <laughs> well, first of all, that was that was an excellent Ryan Bailey impression. So thank round you, of applause you. for you, there, sir. There weren't enough double entendres, but aside from that, I'll take <laughs> not it. enough not enough Scotland roasts, Taylor. Either just as a, a yeah, note of criticism. no Scotland roasts and no any endos in there. But but other good. than that, it <laughs> yeah, was good. it was spot on. Um, yeah, Taylor, are you are you sure you want to talk about this match? No, nope. <laughs> no, I'm not. <laughs> This was uh, this was uh-huh. a bizarre performance by Manchester United, and, and, I, and I wrote this over the weekend. I, I, it, to me, this was the game that 
this was the game that Solskjaer finally lost control of the situation at Manchester United. And even though I, I never, ex- I didn't expect him to get sacked on, you know, on Monday morning as, as the chant go, I don't even expect that he'll get sacked in the coming weeks. But I, I do believe that we're now, this is the beginning of the end for him as Manchester United manager. And we'll look back at this game as I remember a Moyes match where Man United drew two all at home to Fulham. And I think yeah. it was uh, looking back, I think that was in February. And he obviously wasn't sacked until April, but really that match was the end for him. And I think we might look back at this match as the end for Solskjaer. I, I don't know what their approach was. Um, the thing that was most bizarre for me was their pressing plan or lack <laughs> thereof. Yeah. Out of possession, it seemed to me that they were in a 4-2-4, which suggested that they did want to press high. But those advanced positions from the front four didn't actually translate into any actual high press. And that just meant Leicester could pass around them very easily. And that left the midfield completely exposed. And time and time again, Leicester were just arrowing passes from either deep midfield or their defence into advanced positions where Leicester could turn and, and run at Manchester United. And there are a lot of different explanations for that. I think there's a, a good deal of anal- analysis needed. It would be easy to to blame Ronaldo, I guess. And it's certainly true that he doesn't press from the front. I've seen statistics from The Athletic that shows he's he's pretty much the worst presser in the league but it feels like it's it's more than it's more than just one player and even when United did press a little bit higher up the pitch I mean Mason Greenwood was at least trying at times there was just no coordination so when Greenwood was pressing high on Sayuncu there was no one backing him up and I just found it very easy or Leicester I should say found it very easy to play through this Man United team. Graham, uh, listening to the BBC uh, and their coverage of this game in the weekend's action, they were all sort of discussing how safe Ole is, how he's not going to be sacked. We know he's not going to be sacked in the way that like Joe and I talked about Greg Berhalter. Not that he shouldn't be, not that there shouldn't be that conversation, but just that it felt like the power up, uh, like the powers that be, the higher ups were never going to pull that trigger, at least not yet. It seems like you sort of feel the same. Why do you think Ole might be kept around? Uh, the Moyes example you drew, I think, was. The speculation was that they wanted to wait until he was mathematically unable to qualify for the Champions League, and then they could sack him and not have to pay him out nearly as much. I don't know if that's the case here, but it does seem like fans think, okay, enough is enough, the time has come, and pundits seem to think, ah, give it a few more weeks, we'll see what happens. Yeah, I think um, I think the most damning thing about Solskjaer now is he's not learning from his mistakes. And previously, yeah. I've defended Solskjaer because I felt like he was learning on the job as an elite level manager, and he was improving in certain respects. You know, mine it did get better at, at breaking down uh, low defensive blocks and opposition teams. Uh, now it feels like his team selection is all over the place. He's getting his midfield wrong in every single game. So for me, that is the thing that, as much as the results contributes to my opinion that it's it's pretty much done for him as Manchester City manager because I don't I don't see those signs of improvement anymore. I think with with Moyes, yeah, it was a contractual situation. They sacked him the morning after they I think it was an, a defeat to Everton, which I, mean, I think meant they couldn't qualify for the top four. Um, and so that just feeds into this idea that the Glazers don't make a move until they absolutely have to. The one exception with that is Mourinho, who they did actually sack earlier than I thought they would. I thought Mourinho would get a full season and they sacked him in November, was it, Taylor? Around about November time? It was pretty Um, early. Yeah, so, but that, that was maybe because Mourinho made the environment so toxic that the Glazers felt they, they had to get rid of him. That is maybe the thing that will save Solskjaer. I don't think the players, I know there were some questionable comments from Pogba after the match where he talks about something needs to change. I actually don't think he was meaning Solskjaer. I think Pogba and Solskjaer's relationship is actually one of the stronger ones in the dressing room and one of the reasons Pogba continues to play reasonably well for Manchester United despite this contract situation. So, I don't think the players, there's going to be a revolt. I don't think old, I don't think even Old Trafford's going to get that toxic because I think a lot of United fans recognize Solskjaer as a bit of a club hero. It's going to be, it's more Twitter that is a lot more toxic around Solskjaer. So that's all to say, I don't anticipate the Glazers making a move on Solskjaer. It wouldn't surprise me if they gave him the whole season and then when they fall out of the top four, which at the moment seems likely, that's maybe when they would make a move. And it's, it's such a, it's such a shame. Guys, in a way, when you look at the talent that this Manchester United team has, and you can see it on some of their goals in this game, the first one especially, 
the talent they have is just absurd, right? You have Pogba playing next to Matic in this 4-2-3-1 in this game. You've got Bruno Fernandes as that 10, and then Jaden Sancho on one side and, and Ronaldo and Mason Greenwood on the other, uh, Ronaldo up top and Mason Greenwood on the right side in that 4-2-3-1 slash 4-4-2. The talent is just absurd. And I can't help but get the feeling, Graham, I love how you highlighted some of their pressing struggles in this game. I think there were struggles in, in possession, in buildup, and in, in how Manchester United attempted to control this game at all. They did it in spurts, and they get a lovely goal from Mason Greenwood in the 19th minute that comes from a bit of possession. But even on that sequence, they're not really ever threatening to drive into the box and create consistent chances. Yes, they got into the box at times in this game. Ronaldo was very quiet in the first half and got some touches in dangerous spots in the second half. But you can't help but get the feeling when you watch this team that there's something holding the players back instead of allowing them a platform to play upon and actually grow from. And I think there's a realistic explanation where that thing is Ole Gunnar Solskjaer. And and Joe, uh, we talked about this when we were talking about the U.S. and how there are shades of Manchester United to the way the United States national team plays, that sometimes they're very good, sometimes they're very poor, and it's tough to know what is kind of feeding one and what is leading to the other. Uh, but I agree with Graham that it doesn't seem like Ole Gunnar Solskjaer is really learning lessons from game to game or improving his team. All of this begs the obvious question. Joe, would Tyler Adams make this team more functional? Because I really, we've had this conversation before, and I want to be clear, I do not mean it in jest. Manchester United need a mobile number six. I think we've talked a little bit about his limitations playing forward, but I, I think he can do a good enough job. Uh, but I think he covers ground, he puts out fires, he does the defensive work that maybe nobody else is capable of. I genuinely think he makes this team better. Joe, I look forward to you uh, dunking on that theory. No, and, and we've had this discussion before, and I have somewhat changed my tune, Taylor. I do think <laughs> Tyler Adams would help this team Victor. in a way that a Band-Aid would help a more serious wound that wouldn't oh. actually help the wound, right? <laughs> oh. He would he would do something, and I think yeah, you, you like him as a Matic understudy slash mm-hmm. replacement um, in, in that similar role where you have defensive responsibilities. Matic is smoother on the ball than I think a lot of folks give him credit for. So you have this not all-around midfielder, but a, a slightly more defensively inclined midfielder who can also do some things on the ball. You have that, and you like that next to Pogba if Pogba's playing as that other number eight in the four two three one. But none of those things, none of those tweaks or adjustments really overhaul anything. And I think there are things that need to be overhauled, guys. I do I do have some sympathy for Solskjaer in that it feels like this squad is a real puzzle. Um, and I'm not sure if there's an answer. I don't know if there is a winning team in this squad. Despite the fact they have so much talent, it feels really imbalanced. However, that sympathy only extends so far because, of course, this is a squad that Solskjaer has assembled, and so he should maybe have thought of that before now. But I, he does have some difficult decisions to make, and when I was thinking about this in my research, I think actually his only real route out of this situation, he has to he has to sacrifice someone for the sake of some balance and structure. And I think Pogba is the easiest player to drop, despite the fact that he has started the season well. Obviously, he had, what did he have, like 100 assists in his first five games or something like that? <laughs> so... I'd be going for a front three of Rashford, Ronaldo and Sancho. Yeah, Sancho, sorry. Uh, Rashford is a good person to lead the press and Sancho knows how to press from his Dortmund days and they, those two compensate for Ronaldo. Then I'd be going for a midfield three of Fernandez, who can back up the press from midfield with a two of Matic, Fred, McTominay and Van de Beek. Let's not forget about him. And 4-3-3 is a system that Van de Beek worked. He worked so well in at Ajax and mine don't just need a midfield destroyer. They need someone, when Joe's talking about possession play there, which was an issue in this game against Leicester, they need someone who can take the ball under pressure and spin it on and I think Van de Beek it could be that player so I think there is a system that I don't know if it's a, a team that wins the title but certainly maybe gets my United out of this situation but it requires Solskjaer to make some really difficult decisions because then of course that team I mentioned there's no place for Greenwood who's maybe been their best player this season there's no place for Cavani uh, you know Pogba's on the bench so it's it's not easy no, which, whichever way you look at it. Graham, I think you are probably correct that they will continue to give Ole time. Maybe they give him the whole season. That said, much has been made of the fact that they've got Atalanta this week in the Champions League. Then they've got a very informed Liverpool next weekend. If he easy. doesn't get any points there, it does seem like maybe those are easy ways to kind of attack Solskjaer. But at the same time, I think it's easy to defend against like, oh, it's the Champions League. It's always difficult. It's Liverpool. They're one of the best teams in England. I think that's I wouldn't agree with that necessarily because I don't want to lose to either of those clubs. 
But w- what do you think would be the thing that has him out the door? What do you think he can do to save himself? And Joe, uh, I'll come to you for the same question after Graham. I, I think in terms of what he can he can do to save himself, um, just going back to my previous answer, he needs to make some big decisions yeah. on what his first team is because Rashford comes off the bench here, makes a bit of an impact, so is he in the first team? I think Solskjaer needs to settle on what a team is and work on the relationships because that's part of the, the problem is I don't see, for instance, Pogba and Ronaldo, there's no relationship between those two players despite the fact they should be on a similar wavelength. That should be something Man United can build around. So let's, Solskjaer needs to get players on the pitch, work on the relationships. In terms of, what what could push him out the door? I'm I'm not sure anything pushes him out the door, but I think an absolute mauling at the hands of Liverpool next weekend would really, really ramp up the pressure to the point where maybe another couple defeats on the back of that could maybe do the job. Joe, any any disagreement? No, I I, I guess I'm slightly more pessimistic about this whole thing. I don't think yeah, picking a, a team and having those players work together and building the relationships within the squad would obviously help things to an extent. I just have no faith that Ole is going to be able to turn this group into a group that plays cohesive title winning soccer or title contending soccer. Really, we just haven't seen it with the ball. We haven't seen it against the ball. I think a pattern we've seen from Manchester United this season, though, in terms of their results is they lose to teams that have quality and they beat teams that they have a lot more talent than. And in this game, they had more talent than Leicester on a, on a, you know, like for like level, but Leicester have a cohesive plan right now under Brendan Rodgers. They actually have a tactical approach in possession and with their pressing. And, and when Manchester United enter those games, they haven't done well this season. And I don't really see that turning around at any point in the near future, regardless of what changes Ole makes to this group. And Joe, you, it is fair to then point out that I have done, I'm a Man United fan, so I feel like it's always got to happen, but we've done the thing of talking about the team that lost as opposed to, to, to the team that won. And you're absolutely right. Leicester looked better in this game, looked like they had a more cohesive game plan and had just fight from beginning to end, exemplified by Jamie Vardy drawing that foul in, in injury time that leads to the fourth goal. He's running everywhere. He's covering all the ground. Uh, we should probably take a moment to, uh, to have some praise or a bit more praise for Leicester before we move on. They were excellent. They were so, so good. I thought they were in this three, four, one, two shape that also looked like a three, five, two sometimes as James Madison would drop back into midfield to be an eight across from Yuri Tielemans. It also sometimes looked like a three, four, two, one where, uh, Kalichi Iannaccio and Madison would be kind of the two inside forwards underneath Jamie Vardy. I thought the, the, the shape worked really well, and more important than that, of course, is the style that they used. They were comfortable in build-up. They had really great distribution from the central defensive midfield. They were willing to be patient on the ball, but they were also vertical at times, taking advantage of the gaps that Manchester United would give them. I was in love with Tielemans in this game, and, and more than that, I was in love with how he and Madison combined. They're just a joy to watch together. There's a sequence in the 40th minute, guys, where Madison and Tielemans combine on the left side for Leicester. James Madison drops in from his kind of 10 spot then plays it to Tielemans. Tielemans bounces it right back to Madison. And then as soon as he's let the ball go off his foot, Tielemans just sort of drifts forward between Manchester United's lines and Madison returns it to him. And just like that, between the two of those players, Leicester have broken into the attack with some clever combination play, some clever movement from Yuri Tielemans. It's a phenomenal bit of soccer. And there's great goals in this game from Tielemans and, and a, a nice goal from Soyuncu to, to go ahead in the 78th minute and some, some good sequences. The, the end of this game was just insane, right? <laughs> Jamie Vardy's goal and then Manchester United have a, have a goal and, and Pat Sendaka has a goal, not in that order, but it is, it's unreal. And Leicester deserve a lot of credit after a pretty poor start to the season by their standards. And I think a lot of the expectations, they'd only won four out of 11 games this season headed into this one, uh, but they were phenomenal here. And I think they deserve a ton of credit for winning this one for two. The, the, the difference in the coaching between Leicester and Manchester United is, is incredible. And we've spoken, Joe, you mentioned they're the high press from, from Leicester. It's not just in the players who are leading that high press. Obviously, Vardy's very good at that and Madison backs up, but their their defensive line recognises recognizes when that press is happening as well and they push up. And so that means that if Manchester United, on the odd occasion that they did ping a few passes around that Leicester high press, they're into the midfield, but the midfield is really congested because Leicester have got that high line and they've got players like, you know, Tielemans and Didi and so on who can who can just pick the possession off. And, and that is a big difference 
between Leicester and Manchester United because Manchester United, it just felt like Matic and Pogba as that midfield too had so much space to cover, not just laterally, but between the midfield and the defence so that when Leicester were pinging those passes in behind them, they had so much space to run into and United just didn't have that against the, the Leicester defence. Uh, Graham, a, a very easy question to answer for you. Uh, why Johnny Evans good and Harry Maguire bad? <laughs> uh, I think that might come down to coaching again. <laughs> Sorry to put everything at, at, at Solskjaer's door. I, as I, I keep saying, I've been maybe more defensive of Solskjaer than, than, than most. Yeah. But, um, defensively has always been his, his, his weakness. Even when things have been going good in, in the attacking sense, it just feels like he can't. He can't, um, he can't build a cohesive defensive plan and Harry Maguire, his problems were just compounded by the fact he's, he was clearly rushed back from injury for this match. That was another thing that you could blame Solskjaer for. He actually held his hands up a little bit after, after full time and said, if we concede four goals, then maybe I've made a, a couple of bad decisions. And that was one of his bad decisions. Maguire just didn't look sharp at all. I mean, for, particularly for the Tielemans goal, which is obviously an exceptional finish and might be goal of the season. The way he takes that, he totally means it to, to chip De Gea into the far corner. But the way that ball is given up, I don't know why Maguire is waiting for that pass to, yeah. to come to him. I understand he maybe wants to hold on to the ball, but there's also a sharpness in recognizing the situation that you have two Leicester players in front of you. And in that situation, there are times when you just have to take a few steps towards the ball and thump it up the pitch to get it away from danger. If he feels he can't get a pass away to keep possessions and he just didn't make that recognition at all. All right, I'm going to go have a quick cry uh, and, you know, contemplate existence. And then we'll be back to talk Bayern Munich, who uh, are a good team that can get results. Uh, but more in just a moment. First, a word from today's sponsors. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Welcome back to the Bundesliga. We shall go where Dortmund kept their second place status alive with a 3-1 win over Mainz. Surprisingly, Erlon Holland, Erling Holland did not score a goal in that game because he scored two. Freiburg and Leipzig <laughs> drew 1-1, meaning Freiburg are in the European places and Leipzig remain mid-table. But we're going to focus on Bayern Munich's first half destruction of Bayer Leverkusen, a result that had the hosts needing some brand name headache medication. Joe, what did Bayern do to rip this team apart aside from just being Bayern Munich? Or was that sort of the answer? So it's sort of the answer, right? You think about the talent differential between these two teams. Leverkusen are missing a couple of players, specifically in central midfield, which hurts them in a game like this. You have the talent advantage, certainly. I was surprised to see Alfonso Davies start in this game after he started three matches with Canada over over World Cup qualifying in the international break, and then he does exit the first half with a slight hamstring injury. Maybe he wouldn't have left that game if Bayern hadn't been so dominant. But either way, you know, Bayern Munich have a clear talent advantage here, and that's huge. I think at times I can understate that um, and, and get too lost in the tactical side. Having better players is a great way to win soccer games. It's the best way to Check win out. soccer games. And yep. Bayern do that every single year, and they win the title a lot. And that makes a lot of sense. So there's the, the personnel side of things, but there is also... The tactical side of things. Man, this team, I thought, executed their game plan really well. They didn't come in to totally dominate possession, but they got a lot of clever pressure on the ball. They sat in this 4-4-2 mid-block with the wingers pushed up just a little bit to make it look almost like a 4-2-2-2, but not not fully vertical like the 4-2-2-2 tends to be. They're in this 4-4-2 block or some relation to that block. And they're, they're pushing up to try and win the ball when the ball goes wide or on back passes or they, they are just setting up in a high press. And Leverkusen had real trouble playing through that pressure. The Bayern's defensive press 
leads to the first goal, leads to the third goal indirectly, but but still leads to those moments. They were causing Leverkusen real problems with that defensive work. And then with the ball, guys, so fluid, right? Bayern under Nagelsmann and dating back to Hansi Flick, a lot of times it's it's a base 4-2-3-1 shape, right? It's Thomas Miller underneath Lewandowski. We've seen this story a thousand times. But it's fluid in how they attack under Nagelsmann, just like it was at times under Hamdi Flick. There's probably more rotations this year than last, though. You've got that double pivot with Kimmich and Goretzka, and Kimmich would then just be the, the solo six, and Goretzka would push forward. And then one of the wingers would tuck in, and Thomas Muller would drift to the side, and then Nicolas Sudlow would drop and, and stay as one of the center backs, and, and Sané or Gnabry would stay deeper on that side. And it was just hard for Leverkusen to track and to keep up with, and, and Bayern Munich just ripped them to shreds over and over and over again. The the fourth goal basically being Byron winning the ball back and five seconds later it's in the back of the net and in that time they travel I, I think from midfield to scoring from like the tap in from Gnabry it's a it's a very clever tap in it's a great run but just the ruthless efficiency of the way Byron attack uh, always makes me very impressed and then this felt very much like it was gonna finish five to one even though it was five nil at halftime because Byron would sort of ease off go into cruise control, sort of, maybe uh, Leverkusen would be able to get the one, and it finishes as it did. Graham, with that said, it seems like there's been a little bit of soul-searching in Germany in response yeah. to this result. There has. When I was I was looking through the uh, the German press this morning and, and research for this podcast, and I know we all joke about Bayern Munich's dominance of German soccer and how the Bundesliga is a one-team league, but there is a genuine discussion in German soccer circles about what can be done about their dominance. Obviously, this was a, a this was billed as a, a top of the table clash between two teams that were were tied on points before kickoff. And by full time, we just had another illustration of of how it's all an illusion and how much stronger Bayern Munich are than anyone else. And I am very confident in saying there's no chance anyone else is going to win that title this season. Uh, might as well give it to Bayern Munich right now. They're so much stronger. Not only do they have the strongest squad, but oh, they also added the best, the sharpest tactician in the whole country <laughs> to the, to the, to their ranks as well over the summer. So th- there has been talk. I saw one article talking about, um, redistributing some of the, the Champions League revenue more evenly. I even saw in another article a suggestion of getting rid of the 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 fabled and famous fifty plus one rule to to try and attract more investment to to other clubs that seems unlikely but the fact that that's being talked about and being considered tells you that there there is concern in Germany over how the Bundesliga is becoming a one team league and how Bayern Munich just can't be stopped their advantage financially. And just in terms of the culture at that club as well, I think they have the strongest culture of any club in Europe, for my money. That just gives them a, an unassailable advantage. Graham, sticking with the culture aspect for a second, like, what specifically do you mean? Because for me, what I, what I came away from was the idea that when you, when you come into this Bayern team, say somebody like Opa Meccano, who is a good defender, was a good defender for Leipzig, but had issues. And I talked to multiple people who would talk about how sometimes he looked excellent, sometimes he looked really poor. Uh, one friend of mine who watches like every single game, he might even watch more than you, Graham, I don't know how, was arguing <laughs> that like he had never seen Opa Meccano put in a full 90-minute performance. He goes to Bayern, and I would say he did exactly that against Leverkusen. I thought this is one of his more standout games. And it did make me wonder if there is an idea of coming into a club like Bayern, there's just a confidence to every single player that's there that when you're not winning or when you go a goal down, there's just a belief of like, ah, we'll figure it out. We'll find a way through. And if you have everybody sort of bought into the idea of don't worry, we'll end up getting a goal and maybe an element of the like, don't worry, they will end up being afraid of us and we will be able to have opportunities. It does just seem like there is a mentality that is pervasive to Bayern Munich as an organization that means yeah. you can have individuals come in and not lead to wholesale change or things falling apart like you do with other larger clubs when they bring in bigger and bigger names and poach bigger and bigger talent. I, I wonder how much of that mentality is just the confidence of winning and winning consistently means that you expect to win means that you're never too worried when you're not one nil up inside the first five minutes. Yeah. There's, there's a few strands to the, the culture that I spoke about. So the, the first one, the first one, which maybe relates most directly to what you're talking about there is just the, the culture of winning that is at that club and the fact that the, the, can, the legends stick around and, and, and they play roles in executive positions and there's sort of an expectation. Weirdly, Bayern Munich, they find a way to stop that from becoming a crushing expectation. Like a lot of clubs, you think of like Sir Alex Ferguson looking out over David Moyes when he was at Manchester United. It felt like that expectation was crushing. 
crushing on Moyes rather than it didn't embolden him in any way. Whereas Bayern Munich have, they have their legends embolden the current players and the current manager and so on. The other thing about Bayern Munich and their culture is it feels like everything in German soccer gravitates towards them, whether that is signings or managers like Julian Nagelsmann. It is just seen as the pinnacle of German soccer. And, and the, the, I use, to use Manchester United as, as an example again, Kind of like Man United in the late 90s, you know, they go out and sign Andy Cole, they go out and sign Roy Keane from Nottingham Forest, like they just go out, they hoover up the best players from around Germany, I know a lot of be- has been made of that. But then the other thing, I have this theory about football clubs with money, in that the thing that stops them is always complacency and, co- and incompetence, and they don't, football clubs don't tend to run like regular businesses, and if you look at things like tech companies, the money gives them more power to go out and get the best people, and they recognise th- how important it is to get the best people into their company, and it just makes their advantage bigger and bigger and bigger. Football clubs don't tend to do that, but I feel like Bayern Munich do that. So they use their advantage. Not only do they have that advantage, they use that advantage to get the best people in, both on and off the pitch, to the club. And it just makes it very difficult for anyone to, you know, even a club like Dortmund, with the the talent that they've got, with the, the, the stature of the club that they have, the history they have, it feels like they can't compete with Bayern Munich at the moment. So I do understand why in Germany there is this discussion of maybe changing things a little bit to, to level the playing field. Joe, have you been surprised by how good Bayern has looked under Julian Nagelsmann? Because I thought there would be more of a buying-in period. I thought maybe he'd have to get some of the veterans on board with the pressing, with the intensity of his system, with the specificity of his instructions that he's giving. I wasn't sure how well it would go over because Bayern, to me, had an air of a a club that just sort of, we know how we want to play. Don't overcomplicate this. Let us do what we do. And if anything, they look just as good or better. They seem to have found a hybrid approach that works. So I continue to be surprised by how smoothly it's gone so far. Where are you on that one? I'm not all that surprised, honestly, Taylor. I think a lot of the conversation around Julian Nagelsmann in the past has been slightly overblown, probably just because it's easy for us to let some of this stuff get out of control. But man, this team, just just the talent they have, I keep coming back to this, it's unreal. And Julian Nagelsmann, he has come in and changed some things, right? I talked about how the possession is a little bit more fluid than it's been in the past and all of that kind of stuff. But I don't know that there have been dramatic changes. It's still the same base shape. It's still largely the same squad. And if you're coming in and trying to overhaul that, that's that's probably not the best idea. And I don't think that Nagelsmann has done that necessarily. I'd have to dig into the pressing numbers, but I would be surprised if there's been a dramatic uptick in how Bayern Munich press this year relative to how they did last year under Hansi Flick. Nagelsmann's Leipzig teams didn't really press all that much compared to Rangnick or, or Jesse Marsh or anything like that. So I don't know how many changes we've actually seen. And I think the players they brought in, we saw bits of, of Upamecano and Marcel Sabitzer in this game. Upamecano starting and Sabitzer coming off the bench in the second half. They've even strengthened a lot of this yeah. squad with some key players Sabitzer in the last off decade. The bench. What a joke, guys. <laughs> it's, it, it's ridiculous, right? I mean, you see so much talent here. I'm not all that surprised that, that it's been a borderline dominant season so far from Bayern Munich. They haven't been perfect in every single game and they have had their struggles, but we can see in a game like this just how dominant they really can be. I struggle to think of a, of a club, I guess like maybe Real Madrid and Barcelona are like this, but clubs that are just so huge and have such consistent records of success that players like Sabitzer will go there to be a bench player because it means, yeah, they're going to get minutes, they'll start a game here and there, but they're going to win silverware and they're going to be playing for this juggernaut of a club. I can't really blame them. It does just feel unfair. How about this, Joe? Uh, we, we have like the draft, uh, in American sports where the worst teams get rewarded. Uh, we have like the, the allocation order, uh, in Major League Soccer. I always want to call it allocation. Order. <laughs> uh, what if in the Premier League, the team with like the highest, uh, I don't know, dysfunction rating gets to just poach one player or coach from Bayern Munich every season. Does that restore parity? If Manchester United could just swap Nagelsmann and Ole Gunnar Solskjaer right now, or whoever is top of the ranking could just come in and, and pick up Thomas Muller and swap him in for one of their underperforming midfielders. I feel like that's the way we, we bring about parity in the Bundesliga while making the Premier League even more dominant than it already is. Well, I was going to say, maybe if we're looking for parity in the Bundesliga, maybe we just take the go. players from Bayern Perfect. and give them to the other players in the yeah. Bundesliga, not necessarily necessarily the Premier League, but right, Taylor, fine. if this is your elaborate plan to rescue Manchester United, I'm not going to stand in your way. 
you, you, you may have spotted some things. You may have spotted some things. <laughs> Let's go to Italy, uh, where Napoli handed Torino a 1-0 loss that kept the Neapolitans top of the table for another week. Eight games, eight wins, happy times for them. Less so for Torino, although they were photographed bringing home a pallet of mozzarella, so at least they have that to look forward to. <laughs> uh, are, is that real? Is that yes, real, Taylor? It's real. There's a photo oh of their gosh. bus with a giant pallet of, I wasn't sure what it was, but it's all cellophane wrapped cheese. That they were bringing home. So. We have buried the lead. We have buried <laughs> the lead yeah, deep I was, under. I was going to mention how Napoli wore a, a Halloween kit for this match, yeah. but yeah, that is that is the lead. How Torino <laughs> went home with a uh, a feast of mozzarella. It's it, it's at least at least a hundred pounds of cheese, if not more. I will try to find the photo for you both. Uh, Milan, Milan also got a win to keep pressure on Napoli. Juventus bested Roma one nil to pull within touching distance of the top four. But we are going to spend some time with Lazio three. Inter won. This game had a lot of drama before, during, and after. Milan, uh, Inter Milan, excuse me, take a 1-0 lead off of a, an early penalty. Lazio able to pull some goals back and get the 3-1 to win. Joe, let's start with that idea for a second, because Inter in this one, playing the more familiar back three to them under Simone Inzaghi, former Lazio manager, we should note. Uh, they're, they're kind of sticking with a lot of what worked for them last season, but then there are the adjustments. But I'm drawing... That parallel to then point out that this Lazio team are switching to a back four under Maurizio Sarri. There was much made in the commentary of how they're still figuring out how to play, how best to utilize his system, or how best to uh, execute his system. And it did not feel like they were going to be getting the the win here at halftime. It seemed like this was going to end up being a comfortable Inter Milan victory, and it was anything but that by the end. So, Joe, how did Lazio get back into this game? That's a great question, Taylor, because Inter were dominant, I thought, in the first half and even extending into the beginning of the second half. So I want to talk about what went wrong for Lazio first and right for Inter, and then we'll flip the script and try to figure out how this game changed. Inter start in this 3-5-2, right? And you've got uh, Brozovic as the six in front of the three center backs. you got two eights in front of him and then the front two and the wing backs, right? We've seen them use that shape plenty, as you mentioned, Taylor. So they're in this 3-5-2 in Lazio for, you know, for them, they're in this 4-3-3 shape that we associate with Maurizio Sarri in, in large respect. And so they're in that 4-3-3, enters in this 3-5-2, and the X factor, as I saw it in this game, was Brozovic, Inter Milan's number six. Because if you think about putting these two shapes on top of each other, imagine you're, you're overlaying them. You've got the back three for Inter and maybe the, the front three for Lazio. And then you've got the number six for Inter, who is Brozovic. And, with the way that Lazio chose to set themselves up defensively under Sarri, the way that he organized his Lazio team, sorry, you have this, this triangle for Lazio, but there's, the triangle's facing the wrong way, really, because Inter have a deep point and then two points in front of that point. So you've got a, an equilateral triangle where the tip is at the bottom. Lazio's triangle is oriented in a way in which they have a number six and two eights in front of them. So they have the equilateral triangle with the point at the bottom. There's no one touching Brozovic here. That's the point. There's no one stepping to him. There's no one who knows this is my job to go out and press. If Lazio were in a 4-2-3-1 or a 4-4-2, someone would have a clear responsibility and know, okay, I'm supposed to step to Brozovic or I'm supposed to use my cover shadow to, to mark him out of the game. Instead with Lazio, they just sat back. Their midfield didn't really ever step forward and pressure Brozovic, which just let Inter spray diagonal balls out to the wingbacks over and over again. There, You can see that in the build-up to, the, to their first goal, their only goal, Inter. And then you can see it again in the 21st minute, again in the 21st minute, so twice in that spell, and twice again in the 31st minute. I just stopped tracking this because it happened so many times. Lazio could never get a grip on this game. They could never fully establish possession because Inter kept playing through them on repeat in this game, and they couldn't figure out how to change it. Finally, in the second half, Taylor, I think we see some changes from Sarri where you had Pedro and Felipe Anderson as the, the wingers in this game. And Pedro started stepping forward alongside Immobile more often. And it did look like a 4-4-2, at least in moments. And that helped a little bit block off service into Brozovic. But eventually, Lazio just kept the ball. And they said, well, maybe if we can't defend you, we're just going to make it so that we don't have to defend you. And around the 60th minute, Lazio started to get this stranglehold 
on possession in this game. And we started to see some sorry ball. We started to see a lot of the combination play that's made Maurizio Sarri a famous manager. The, the midfielders making those forward runs, the wingers coming back into midfield. And we finally started to see them play their game because they didn't have to worry about defending so much and, and didn't have to worry about fixing the massive problem in this game. They just sort of changed the circumstances around the game and they changed the game with their possession. They get some goals. It's not directly from the possession necessarily, but that the difference in how Lazio approached this game and finally deciding to take it, this is a big cliche, but they took it by the scruff of the neck and just kept the ball. I think that had a massive impact on, on turning the tides in this one. And if you were spotlighting a couple of players for Lazio who you think were instrumental in that turnaround, I'm assuming Felipe Anderson is is on that list. I'm guessing Pedro is as well, because I spotted that thing you pointed out of him moving more central, being more of a kind of like second striker option, and just creating problems for Inter. Those two players stood out to me in very good ways. What about you, Joe? I'm right there with you, Taylor. The wingers, and every time I've watched Lazio this season, the wingers are really important because the way that the, the way that Sari likes to create a lot of these combinations is by having so much movement in the front line, specifically with those wingers. The midfielders will go and push up, like, like Milinkovic Savic will go and, and try to break the opposition's back line with a vertical run. And that cues a winger to drop in, or maybe it's the other way around. The winger drops in, and that cues the eight to run forward. Either way, there's a lot of movement. And so those players have to be really aware of when and, and why they're moving, really. And, and Pedro, I think, is excellent at that in every time I've seen him this year. It wasn't perfect in this game. But Pedro has that fluidity in his movement. The same with Felipe Anderson. He's dynamic on the dribble as well. And we can see that on the second goal for Lazio, which is a little bit controversial. Uh, there's, there's a lot that goes in there, and we'll talk about that in just a minute. But there's a ton of talent in this Lazio team. Milinkovic Savage is a target on set pieces. He scores that that late, not winner, but the, the, you know the, to extend the lead for Lazio in the 91st minute with a header off of a Luis Alberto free kick. There's a lot of talent in this squad, and it just took a while for it to get on the same page and really take over the game. There is a lot of talent for Lazio. You are also correct, Joe, that I think Inter and their fans are going to feel as though this was an unfair result because for the Felipe Anderson goal, the second goal for Lazio, uh, it's an easy rebound off of a Chiro Immobile shot, but the controversial part would be that Inter had had attack of their own, and it was DiMarco playing a ball forward and then his momentum carries carries him into a player slash a player steps into him. That is a foul after the ball has gone, but referee allows the advantage. Inter go down, and I think Latoma Martinez ends up with a shot that is saved. And then Lazio come back the other way, but DiMarco remains on the ground. Uh, they play right past him. They end up getting the goal. Dumfries uh, grabs Felipe Anderson by the <laughs> neck, somehow doesn't get a red card for that one, or at least I don't think he even gets a yellow card for that one. Graham, do you have any issues with how this goal was scored? I, I can see why Inter felt like, oh, we didn't know that foul had occurred. We didn't know no, he was down because no. we hadn't turned around. But I also really don't feel like Lazio did anything wrong. No, I, okay. <laughs> I have no issue with this goal whatsoever. I, I had a feeling. Yeah, I, I, obviously the, the, the laws of the game are that you only stop the, the match for a head knock, and I think maybe the only exception you would have is if it's so clear that a player has suffered a really bad injury, um, then you would then you would stop the match. But the fact that Inter have an attack yeah. <laughs> themselves before they then demand that the play is stopped, nope, sorry, you've, <laughs> you, you lost any grounds for argument by doing that, and I have absolutely zero issue with Lazio playing on and, and scoring from this play. Yeah, Handanovic, uh, the Inter goalkeeper, you could clearly see saying, like, we didn't know they'd played forward. We didn't know he was down. But I have to believe that there were players saying, hey, you've got a guy down. Hey, he's still down. Kick the ball out. Kick the ball out. And they tried to, I guess, but in instead the kicking out was saved, uh, which is my way of saying that it wasn't a very good shot. Uh, so, yeah, I, I don't have much of an issue there. The next question becomes about the red card to Luis Felipe at the end of the game. Uh, not Felipe Luis, always worth noting. Uh, but I have a theory, a, a large part of this is because of something that happens in the game. But it's Joaquin Correa subbing on for Inter, the former Lazio player. Joaquin Correa, we should add, uh, who then at the end of the game, Luis Felipe, his former teammate, runs up, kind of jumps on his shoulders in a mock celebration. And I do think he meant it as like... A kind of like, you know, lads after the game, whatever, but with uh, the intensity of the match as it was and with the kind of probably severe swing and emotion for Correa knowing that he's playing his former club and losing to them, I also think he is the one who is supposed to be marking Sergei Milinkovic Savic, who scores the third goal and just completely loses him. And that's why SMS is so wide open for that header to get the third goal. And Correa is just standing there knowing he's done something wrong. So 
Even if uh, Luis Felipe, not Felipe Luis, thought <laughs> that he was just being like a funny guy, I think in that moment he might have come upon Correa being very mad at himself, being very mad at the result and the world, and then having somebody jump on his shoulders and then refuse to let him go in this sort of aggressive but kind of friendly hug. Uh, I think I see what Luis Felipe was going for, but I also understand why the red card was given. It's such a bad misreading of yes, the room. It, <laughs> yes, it and, and the context is that, that um, uh, Felipe and Correa, I also get the two Correas mixed up as well. I get yep. Felipe Luis and, and uh, Luis Felipe and Angel Correa and Joaquin Correa. Yep. So it's Joaquin Correa in this one. Yep. The, uh, Felipe and Correa are good friends. It's not just that they're former teammates. Um, I read that Felipe was saying afterwards, like their, their families holiday together and, and, and stuff like that. So I, I think it's quite clear he does mean it in a jovial way. I, I, before we started recording, I compared it to if, if I was playing fives against a friend and you would maybe kind of jump on their back and go like, way, you know, we've won the match or whatever. But that, that five side match is not the same as a competitive Serie A match at the Stadio Olimpico where you're playing your former team and you've maybe just been at fault for the, the, the late goal. Uh, Graham or Joe, whoever wants to take this one. I promise this is not toxic masculinity speaking. Always a great way to begin a conversation. <laughs> I was confused by Luis Felipe crying after getting the red card. And my assumption, mostly confused just because I couldn't quite figure out why he was crying. My assumption is that it's one of those moments where it's like, no, I really didn't mean it that way. I was really just trying to be friendly. I pro And like nobody listening, everybody getting mad and then eventually getting a red card. I'm assuming... That's almost like when you say a little kid did something and they didn't and they don't know how to respond. So they just get really upset and really loud. Like, that's the only thing I can figure, which does have me feeling some sympathy for Luis Felipe. But at the same time, maybe don't jump on the back of your former teammate who has just lost and then things don't go the way they did. Any <laughs> thoughts on that one? I, I don't know, Taylor. I, this yeah. whole situation is so weird. I completely yeah, agree with Graham. You right? just misread the room on a major level. It's just so bizarre. Celebrate with your own team uh, and, and jump on your own teammates' backs so yeah. this whole thing won't happen in the first place. I, I wish I had a greater psychological understanding of what was going on here because I am legitimately curious, but I do not know. I took it the same way you did, Taylor. It's, I have to admit, I don't, and again, this is not, you know, yeah. toxic masculinity. I don't think I would have cried in that situation, but I can understand why he would be upset. And who knows, you know, with all the, I'm, I'm not playing football matches in front of thousands of people and on national television. Who knows? Maybe that sort of thing does get to you, but that's how I took it was he, he was very upset that something that he'd done in jest had been taking as, um, had been taking as a, an inflammatory confrontational thing. It, it was also just so strange for for people who have not seen. You can find the kind of post match four minutes on YouTube, or at least you could uh, yesterday evening. I don't know if they've been pulled since then, but I guess Lazio. I don't know what their post match song is, but it seems to be some very flowing, sort of softer like song that is sung by the entire ground. And so it was th this very like mellifluous song with the <laughs> entire crowd singing as on the pitch there's just chaos and red cards and tears streaming and players shoving and it was very much at odds with each other and I think it made it that much stranger. So a very odd end to that one. We have one more uh, game to be discussed. Hopefully it doesn't end with anybody crying or with us talking about how odd it was. But first, we'll take one more break to hear from today's sponsors. Hey folks, this is Taylor from the Total Soccer Show reminding you that we are inching ever closer to the start of the summer transfer window, which means there are teams that will buy and sell their players early, there are teams that will leave that business very late, and there are teams that will operate in between. But no matter what, it's going to be a chaotic situation, there's going to be offers coming through willy-nilly, there's going to be transactions to be tracked and processed and make sure that enough money is there, there's going to be probably angry clubs calling to complain, there are many things to deal with, and unfortunately for those clubs, there is no sort of business tool that makes things easier, makes transactions simpler, gets the business done efficiently and effectively, but for the small businesses around the globe, there is such a service, Shopify. 
Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business, from the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're auctioning autographed apparel or selling sleek kits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. And you can sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. And I really appreciate that about Shopify. No matter how big you are, no matter how fast you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the United States, and Shopify's the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, Brooklyn, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. That's as many countries as will be selling players in the transfer window this summer. Plus, Shopify's extensive help resources are there to support your success every step of the way because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash TSS, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash TSS now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash TSS. Today's episode is brought to you by our old friends, Mac Weldon. Wouldn't it be nice if we could have things both ways, like a zero-calorie cheeseburger, internet ads in March that weren't just reminders to do your taxes, a dog that never needs walking after midnight when it's cold, a Manchester United that is consistently good instead of their current scattershot approach? Well, we tend to think of clothing as an either-or situation as well. People think looking sharp means starchy Oxfords and stiff chinos rather than effortless comfort. But it's possible to have it both ways. Mack Weldon makes timeless apparel with modern performance fabrics for guys who want to look and feel sharp without sacrificing comfort. From their light-as-air underwear to innovative anti-odor tees and versatile yet comfortable pants, Mack Weldon has a full range of clothes that never go out of style. I got a few things recently, including a long-sleeve polo, which I love, uh, maybe the most comfortable t-shirt, which I also love, and my new favorite sweatpants, the Ace sweatpant. It's exactly what I described above, comfort and versatile, but still stylish. It's the type of sweatpant I can wear to pick up my kids from daycare and not think, I'm now wearing sweatpants in public. The other parents will judge me. Now I just think, judge away, nerds, because you will never be this comfortable unless you're also wearing a pair, in which case, high five. Mack Weldon is not flashy. It's just classic, always in style, and made from the world's most comfortable performance materials. They're designed to fit both your style and the demands of modern life. So get timeless looks with modern comfort from Mack Weldon. Go to MacWeldon.com and get 20% off your first order with promo code TSS. That's M-A-C-K-W-E-L-D-O-N.com, promo code TSS to get 20% off your first order. Thank you to Mack Weldon for sponsoring today's episode. Welcome back to La Liga We Shall Go. Neither Atleti nor Real, neither of the Madrids, played this weekend after receiving special dispensations since they would have both been missing so many players because South America changed their World Cup qualifying format. I think I have that correct. So for the time being, we're going to talk about Barcelona, who I thought were very, very good. They seem like a leaner, hungrier, and sort of importantly, angrier team to me as they got a 3-1 to win over Valencia. Graham, we've talked a lot about Barcelona. You and I, I think, first began our conversations by talking about La Liga, right. and specifically Barcelona. So I come to you to ask, is Ronald Koeman figuring this team out or is this just a one-off performance? But I watched this game and just felt like this is a team that seems to have gotten, as I said, like leaner, hungrier. They seem more bought in. They're willing to get into it physically if they need to, but they're still willing to play good attacking football. I thought this was a very strong result for Barca. Yeah, I'm not sure if I can answer your first question right now. Maybe ask me that in a week's time because Barcelona have a big game in the Champions League against Dinamo Kiev, which they really need to win if they're to stand any chance of getting out of their group. And then, of course, they have the Clasico against Real Madrid, which will tell us a lot about this, this group of players. But you're absolutely right. This was better from Barcelona. I think a big part of that is just similar to what Joe was saying about Bayern Munich and the the talent differential. Barcelona have players back for this game. Ansu Fati starts his first game since November 2020 and he makes a big difference. So unsurprisingly, better players give you a a better chance of winning soccer matches. However, there was there were a few tactical things from Koeman in this match which were interesting. There had been calls for him to revert to a a 4-3-3. A lot has been made of that at Barcelona. We've spoken about that a number of times. And it, it 
it was reported over the international break that this has become such an issue that Juan Laporta, the Barcelona president, even spoke to Coleman about changing to a 4-3-3. And this was a 4-3-3 of sorts. <laughs> the one outlier in this is a certain Sergino Dest, whose positioning was interesting to <laughs> say the least. He wasn't, so he was playing in a more advanced position, but he wasn't even playing as a right midfielder, which would have been interesting in itself. He was playing as a kind of right-sided forward. Um, I can understand, understand why Coleman is looking for a solution on that right side, but to use Dest ahead of Sergio Roberto, who isn't really a right back. So Roberto and Dest were both in the same team, but it was Roberto who was the one playing as the right back and Dest playing as the, the kind of winger, the forward. Um, yeah, that was a choice. <laughs> uh, and I don't think actually, I think it worked to a certain extent. It's just, it's just a bit weird to see Dest in that, in that position. They do need someone to provide them some verticality on, on the right side. And maybe Dest is their best option to do that. Obviously, he approaches the game much like a, like a winger. You know, he's a very attack minded fullback. And so it wasn't too much of a departure from his normal role, but it tactically his positioning was the big talking point from this match, particularly in the, in the first half. Joe, does Ronald Koeman just want to sow discord in U.S. men's national team ranks? Cause that's what I'm assuming. <laughs> we come away from this international break. We've decided Anthony Robinson is our left back. Serginho Dest is the right back. We know that's where they're going to be. We know that's what gets the best out of them. Then he just comes in this game and looks very good as a right winger. And now I'm concerned that we're going to get a ton of conversations about should he be a right winger for the U.S. national team? And should somebody somebody else start it right back? We've already been getting those conversations, Taylor. Here they're only go. going to intensify at Here this we point. Thanks, uh, Ronald. Uh, Sergio Des can do both of those, those jobs. He could play goalkeeper, right? I mean, players can play in any position. Positions are not like this hard and fast rule to soccer that you can only be in one spot and play there. You can play in a lot of different spots. And Sergio Dest did some good things as a winger in this game. And I think he can do that job for club and country if needed. I still do prefer him in a lot of senses as a fullback, as someone who starts from a deeper position, because I think the timing of those runs that he can do, that he can overlap and provide this last bit of attacking flair, I guess, rather than having to be the one who always initiates those attacks on the wing and is receiving the ball first and then waiting for the overlap instead. I don't know that his skill set fits as well in that that winger role because he's already starting up the field. You don't get any sort of dynamic advantage for arriving late or arriving to create a 2v1 or, or whatever the situation is. It's a different set of circumstances playing as a fullback versus a winger in most situations. That said, I thought he did a pretty good job in this game. He wasn't he wasn't perfect. There's a moment in the first half where he's on the weak side. He's playing really wide on the on the right wing and the play is on the left and he starts to crash the box and the ball. I think it, it's from Ansu Fati. It might be from Jordi Alba, but the ball comes across the box and Dest does crash the back post and try to slam it home at the back post. But he's either a little bit late or Valencia do just oh, yeah. a great job of clearing the ball. I think it's probably a bit of both, but that was one moment where I said, okay, Sergio Dest maybe isn't wholly used to being in situations like this. So there were things to nitpick. He wasn't totally clean on the ball, but I, I liked a lot of what I saw from Dest, which does not surprise me because he is a very clever, creative, attacking player. If it's the same play that I'm thinking of, I, it's credit to uh, Gaia for sliding in. Yeah, the last it's a good tackle. And, and yeah. poking it away, I think, because otherwise, yeah, that probably is a, a tap in there. I watched this one live, and this is where the rewatch is always to your advantage because when you rewatch, you can see the adjusted tactics but for for the for the start of this one I had Dest as the right back and Sergio Roberto as the kind of right-sided midfielder and kept being confused like oh they must be position switching a lot oh they must be swapping a lot and then slowly realized like no Sergio Roberto is just playing right back and Sergio Dest is further forward uh but I thought it, that was a gamble from Kuman that did work out and Dest obviously gets the assist for the third goal uh but I think Maybe Kuman gets less credit for starting Memphis and Ansu Fati because that's kind of obvious. But at the same time, they both looked very good. Graham, was that the best penalty of the season? <laughs> it, it's an absolute corker. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's superb. It's one of the he best penalties so I've, I've ever seen. He There's just so absolutely hard. no chance that the nope. the goalkeeper's saving that. And if he does get behind it, he's going into the net with it. Um, I thought... Ansu and Memphis was the biggest positive of this match for Barcelona. There are, there are real signs of a partnership between those two. And I think those two players give Barcelona real hope. They are two very productive players. Um, Ansu well beyond his years. I think that's been the most startling thing about him is 
you know, you get talented teenagers who, particularly in kind of wide, it seems like there's a lot of talented wide forward teenagers. They seem to break through a little bit earlier than others. And it always seems to be their final product that's the last thing they add to their game. But Ansu has had that from the moment he broke into that Barcelona first team. And as obviously he gets the, the, the first goal in this game after 13 minutes, as, as I mentioned earlier, his first start for 11 months after being out through injury. And, they, with Ansu and Memphis, they just seem to be on the same wavelength together, which is, is, is really good news. Ansu brings intensity and I, I can't figure out why he brings intensity. Maybe Joe has a better idea because he's, he's not, it's not like he's leading the high press or anything. He's, he's obviously an outlet on the left side, but there's just, there's just more of a zip to Barcelona's play when he's on the pitch. And as soon as he comes off after 58 minutes, everything dropped, including the atmosphere inside the stadium, which I thought was notable given he is very much the messy of this team now. Fans come to the stadium to watch Ansu Fati play for Barcelona, or they, I expect they will do over the course of this season. Obviously, they haven't been doing it over the last 11 months. And he is just so important to this Barcelona team. Memphis as well. I think I, I saw the penalty that he scored was his 50th or 51st direct goal involvement in 2020. Either it was either the last 12 months or in 2021, which is is incredible and just shows how productive he has become. And I didn't expect he would grow into that player when he was when I saw him earlier in his career at Manchester United. But Coleman, as long as he can keep Ansu and and uh, and Memphis fit. He has something there to build around. There is a, there's an attacking hub there, those two players. And I'm not sure how much of it is down to anything that Coleman is actually doing tactically, yeah. but sort of in a, sort of in a social way of just get your yep. best players on the, on the pitch and they will do something. I think as long as Ansu and Memphis are allowed to do their thing, Barcelona have a chance of at least keeping, I was going to say turn around their season. I don't know. I don't know about that, but at least kind of keeping their dignity this season. There, there are going to be games this season and maybe this is one of them. Well, we are mesmerized by Barcelona. I wasn't mesmerized in this game. I think there's still a lot of flaws that we saw, especially defensively in this one. But there are going to be games where we are just awed by Depay and by Ansu Fati and by maybe even Serginho Dest overlapping on the right side or just starting higher on the right side in midfield play and young, talented players coming up through the ranks. I mean, all of those things are great and those games are going to happen. And this game was probably at least adjacent to that category. There are also going to be games where it feels like this team is drowning. And we've already talked about multiple of them this season. And I think that's, again, rooted in the manager and rooted in a lot of the systemic problems in this organization. Ronald Koeman has not shown an ability, a consistent ability to set this team up in a way that allows them to have a foundation and then build upon that foundation. Did that sound like anyone else we know, Graham? You just mentioned him. It, it's a very similar situation, I think, managerially with Ole Gunnar Solskjaer and Ronald Koeman. There is not a real tactical game plan defensively in this game. Barcelona were so weird, right? They're in this man-oriented shape. There's players everywhere. And, and other coaches, including Marcelo Bielsa and Matias Almeida, do that kind of stuff. They'll have some man-marking defensively. But Barcelona didn't do it well in this game. PK was getting dragged out and Sergio Roberto was stepping forward and it just looked really disorganized and it didn't give Valencia a lot of trouble. I thought they were honestly solid in this game at pretty much everything but creating chances. Um, and so they weren't perfect, but, but Valencia made Barcelona's life harder than it should have been. So there are still problems with this Barcelona team and they're going to show up a lot this year. I do think at the same time, we will see some wonderful performances and some really wonderful individual moments because players like Ansu Fati and Memphis Depay are phenomenal players. The area of the pitch that it's, it feels like to me Coleman is still not doing enough with is, is the midfield. And Barcelona now, particularly after the emergence of, of Gavi, which by the way has been a, a massive storyline in Spain. He obviously had a very impressive international break with, with Spain just there. In the Nations League, um, there's a lot of people really excited about him. So the emergence of Gavi means that Barcelona have Sergio Busquets who by the way, Gavi seems to have rejuvenated him, particularly for Spain. And it, it, there's a, a growing sense that if you get the best, the right player, sorry, around Busquets, you get Busquets back to something close to his, his best. So you've got Busquets, Gavi, Frankie de Jong, and then of course Pedri to come in. That midfield is potentially one of the strongest midfields in, in European football. And yet it still feels like there's a lack of control from, from Barcelona. Taylor, you said, I thought this was good from Barcelona. I thought it was good performance. I think Valencia are a, a better team than they were last season under Jose Bordelas and they're a better drill team so I do think it was good but I still I agree with Joe I felt watching this game there there was a lot of structural problems they didn't really seem to have much control of large periods of the game that seems to be an issue for Barcelona as they can produce 
good spells within matches, but they never produce a good performance for 90, 90 minutes. And that's what we got here. I thought Carlos Soler had a good game for Valencia. Gonzalo Guedes, if he had been a little bit sharper in front of goal, he could have scored a couple in this match. So th- there are positive signs for Barcelona and that they're getting better players on the pitch, but still a lot of structural and tactical things that have yet to be resolved. All right. I mean, everyone is entitled to their opinion. I'm just writing down real quick. Uninvite Joe and Graham from Balloon World <laughs> Cup viewing party. All right, cool. That's done. No. Uh, <laughs> one thing I wanted to uh, spotlight before we uh, end today was Yunus Musa, who subs on uh, in this game, the American international. Joe subs on in more of a central midfield position, uh, more of in like their kind of defensive 4-4-2. Yes. He's one of the two central midfielders. Yes. But I wanted to spotlight Casey Keller, uh, who was doing the color commentary for this one, blamed Yunus Musa for not getting to or not tracking Coutinho for the third goal. Felipe Coutinho is wide open. Sergio Des plays him in. He finishes easily. Musa is making a play, but making a play very late. I went back and watched this one about ten times, as I want to do, and I will say two things. One. Keller is correct that Musa could have probably been more alive to this one, been more aware that there's a Barca player wide open in the box and gotten to him. But I would add that that was not Yunus Musa's man, that he was tracking Jordi Alba on the left, uh, who was making an overlapping run, who was making a very aggressive attacking run. Alba then holds that run up and kind of checks back towards the top of the box. Musa follows him. Meanwhile, this is the key thing for me, is that Coutinho continues his run and Guillamon, the central midfielder for Valencia, he like uh uh Coutinho literally runs into him and Guillemon kind of sidesteps and and like continues to walk up the pitch and lets Coutinho just drift right by him. So Musa, who's paying attention to Alba, then spots that there's a wide open player in the box, tries to get to him, but gets there too late. So I just wanted to emphasize that that was not entirely Yunus Musa because I thought otherwise he looked uh okay to pretty good in the middle of the park for Valencia. Joe, what did you think of Yunus Musa on, on the day? Yeah, if we set that moment in in Valencia's own box aside, because Taylor, I think you broke that down well. I didn't have the commentary on for this game, so I didn't have any beef with Casey Keller. Um, but Musa came on, and I love that he was playing as an eight. That was awesome to see in that double pivot for Valencia. I thought he was trying stuff, man. And I think that fits our understanding of Yunus Musa right now. He comes on, and he's willing to take a guy on, on the dribble, and try to break Barcelona down that way. He's also trying to play some aggressive passes, which is, I mean, they're not super aggressive aggressive line-breaking through balls, but he's trying to play forward, and Valencia need that kind of stuff. It fits their style under Bordalas pretty well. Um, Musa wasn't perfect, though, in the things that he's trying to do, and that's not all that surprising. He's still evolving as a player. He was coming on and trying to push the game forward, but he had a couple of passes that were intercepted. He had a couple of turnovers. That stuff's going to happen. Overall, though, I was encouraged. It's this teenager coming on and trying to push a game and inspire a comeback, and I don't know how often we really see that kind of stuff, Taylor. Uh, Graham, your detailed thoughts on Yunus Musa, a player that I know that you know and love and follow diligently? <laughs> well, I've watched him a bit in La Liga, but I have to say I, I, I didn't uh, notice him as much in this match as perhaps the two of you did. But <laughs> right. g- given how you uh, how you track Tyler Adams, uh, maybe it's unsurprising that Yunus Musa is the only thing you watch from this match when he comes <laughs> off the bench. <laughs> uh, Graham, unrelated to that, I just need a quick soundbite. Can you just say he's better than Kieran Tierney for me? No, no, no. <laughs> You're never getting that out of me. Fine. All right, well, congratulations to Barcelona from me. Concerned congratulations to Barcelona from Graham uh, and Joe. Gentlemen, we've talked about uh, four different European leagues today. We've talked about four different uh, big-time games. Anything else to be discussed before we call this one a day? Did anyone see the Vitesse Arnhem fans bouncing so hard that the, the stand gave way beneath them? No. Wow. Did anyone see that? <laughs> that sounds not good. Uh, thankfully, everyone seemed like it seemed like everyone was okay, which was my first thought was, wow. "Oh dear, that looks terrible." But it seemed like everyone was okay, and the the clearest indicator that everyone was okay was that they just continued bouncing. <laughs> <laughs> all right, well, that's good, I guess. But uh, hopefully, all all goes well there. But that's some intense fans. Well done, Vitesse. Uh, less so, Vitesse Stadium. Uh, but for now, listeners, thank you all so much for listening. Graham Ruffin, thank you so much for joining me today. I will not say the same to Ryan Bailey, but I will say that to you. <laughs> no problem, Taylor. Uh, Joe, thank you for taking the time to talk to me about all four games that we talked about today. You got it, man. Ryan Bailey, listeners, I'm assuming is off investigating the latest saga in the Wanda Nara scandal uh, with Mauro Icardi. <laughs> I'm sure he will have thoughts on that later in the week. But for now, thank you all so much for listening. We'll talk to you all again very soon. Mm-hmm.